So what are you? Are you black? Are you white? Are you mixed? That question followed me around for 12 years growing up in Arcadia, Florida. Are you black? Are you white or are you mixed? And I was this little curly-headed, light-skinned, non-English-speaking Puerto Rican who did not fit the flawed racial labels that existed for those of us who look a little racially ambiguous. And you know what, I never understood why that question was so important for me to answer. Why was that the first question people would ask me? I never, I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why it mattered to so many people. But then I realized one day that what they were really asking me was, do you belong here? Are you safe? Can I trust you? Do you think you're better than me? Will you hurt me? And at times, that question felt more like a command for me to pick a side. Are you black? Are you white? Or are you mixed? And how I chose to define myself, how I chose to answer that question, affected everything. I mean, it affected whether I sat by myself during lunch. It affected um, who was okay for me to like and who could like me back. It determined uh, how much attention and investment I would receive from teachers. And whether or not they would see me as a troublemaker or just outspoken and confident. And how I defined myself impacted how I dressed, what shows I watched. It, it, it defined who I hung out with before the school bell rang. What are you, white, black, or mixed? You know, I defined myself one way, my friends defined me another, and still yet strangers had other labels for me. I mean, was it possible for me to be both black and white and Puerto Rican? I mean, was it okay for me to speak Spanish but come from the Caribbean and not Mexico? Was that okay? But then to also be American? You know, I wanted to answer, well, all of the above. But then there were other days where I wanted to answer, well, actually, none of the above. How I define myself, how others define me was very different. But the truth is that the labels that I chose for me lacked meaning. And they lacked purpose because they were not shaped by an understanding that I was created in the image of God. Does that make sense? So I had my definitions, they had theirs, but they were both incomplete, inaccurate, and flawed because it did not come from a place of understanding that I was created in the image of God. Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say I am? Who do you say I am? Jesus was also confronted with the question of who are you, what are you? Everyone had their own opinion of who Jesus was or he, who he should be. A healer, a prophet, a good teacher, maybe, maybe the promised king of Israel. 
This morning, I'm talking about the transfiguration, but I feel that in order for us to understand what's happening in this passage, we have to put it into context, and we have to remember what took place beforehand. And so eight days before the transfiguration, after coming out of a time of prayer, Jesus asked his disciples this seemingly random question. He says, who do the crowd say I am? Who do you say I am? Now, I'm not sure that Jesus really cared that much what people thought of him. Maybe he did. I don't know. But I think that the disciples' understanding of who he was, that, that, that mattered. That was important. And Peter declares, you are God's Messiah. He was the promised deliverer of the Hebrew people, the one that they had been waiting for, who would rule and set things right. And you know what? Peter was right. This was true. He is the Messiah. He was the Messiah. But then Jesus goes on to say, but I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be rejected, and they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I will rise. But if you're going to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily. you got to lose your life in order to gain it, and if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And then he just lets them marinate on those hard words for eight whole days. You imagine hearing all of that eight whole days, just sitting with that. And I just can't imagine how disheartening and crushing it must have been for the disciples to hear that. They had been longing, like all Jews, for the coming king to bring justice, to deliver them from their Roman oppressors, and they believed that Jesus was that king. But now he's saying he's going to suffer? He's going to die? And there's nothing that they can do about it. Was Jesus just a good teacher? Was he just a healer and a prophet? Or was he Messiah? He invites Peter, James, and John to the mountaintop to pray. And in that space, something miraculous happens. We see in this passage that heaven comes to earth. The supernatural invades the mundane. And Jesus is transformed. His face, his clothes, his entire appearance changes. You, you even got Moses and Elijah showed up to the party. I mean, come on. Changing clothes, changing face, Moses, Elijah. It is breathtaking. It is a mind-blowing event. As I've read through this passage, I wonder why now? Why did God choose to reveal his glory now, in this moment? Why here? Why not in the feeding of the 5,000? Why not with the demon-possessed people? Why not there? Why here, in this moment? I was reading Justo Gonzalez's commentary on this passage, and he writes, I love this, it's so beautiful. He says, after Jesus announces his impending sufferings and death, the transfiguration comes and is a reminder that in spite of all outward signs of defeat and powerlessness, Jesus is ultimately more powerful than death, more powerful than the political and religious authorities in Jerusalem. It is a reminder 
This is a reminder that even though this is what you see, you see defeat, you see powerlessness, you see hopelessness, it is a reminder in case you forgot, I am more powerful than death itself. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to suffer. It will be humiliating. You will be scared, but see, I am more powerful. Yes, Caesar will be the one to decide my fate, but I am more powerful than these rulers and authorities. And when I think about us, our city, our world, the transfiguration is important. This moment is important, not was important. It is important. It's important, you know why? Because the current political climate that we are in is volatile. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is more powerful than the powers that be. Right? Anybody needs to be reminded of that. You turn on the news. He is more powerful than the powers that be. The transfiguration is important because I don't know about you, but these days I am afraid to turn on the TV. I'm afraid to look through my Twitter feed because I just don't know who, who was the next one that got shot. Where else was there another explosion where innocent lives were lost? but we don't even got to turn the TV on. You guys, you, the work that you do in this city, the work that you do, you just open up your door, you step outside and you see it. You see the evil, you see the suffering. You see it, you engage in it every single day. That's what you guys do. The transfiguration is important because we get tired, right? We get easily discouraged because each of us have and we will face moments where we don't want to take up our cross. I don't feel like it, not today. And where losing our soul in order to gain the life that the world offers, it seems more appealing, more safe. And we struggle with the feelings of defeat and we end up falling into the arms of futility. And we wonder, does it even matter? Does it matter if I answer that phone call? Does it matter if I go to that one place, to that appointment with that person? Does it matter if I have another conversation? Does it matter because we work and we work and we work and we pray and we pray and nothing seems to change? Does it matter? I was talking to my sister and friend Deborah the other day. You guys know Deborah? Who doesn't know Deborah? Come on. IT underground director, beautiful, amazing, joyous woman of God. I was talking with her and, and you know, we were just kind of chatting about how she's doing and, and she says, you know, I'm often asked, how's, how's work um, going with AU in Haiti? How's, how's it going underground in Haiti? How's, what's happening there? And she said that she usually pauses before responding because she's wondering, does this person want the unedited raw version or do they want the newsletter version? <laughs> Y'all know there's a difference. What we write in our newsletters for our donors, those that have donors, you know. And then there's the actual real answer. Now, I'm not saying that you guys are lying. I don't want to say that. But you know, the, 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 the raw version that, that tells how sad 
and depressed you are sometimes, we don't write that in newsletters. And she wonders, what, do, what, what answer do they want to hear right now? And she said that, you know, she started opening up and she was very honest and she said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that God is a God of hope. We know that. We can all agree on that. God is a God of hope. She said, but in Haiti, more often than not, I feel hopeless. God is a God of hope, but in Haiti, more often than not, she feels hopeless. And she wonders, she's wrestling through that because she wonders, how is that even possible? How can you believe that God is a God of hope and feel hopeless? She said, I believe that God created Haiti. I believe God created Haitians in his image. I know he loves them. He died for them. He fights for them. But man, the evil of poverty, it feels like that's all I see. That feels like that is all I see. And, and she says, our small efforts, our sacrifices, they just don't seem like enough. It doesn't seem to be making a difference. And she asks, Jesus, where are you right now, here? Where are you? And she's trying to figure out how to live in the tension of feeling hopeless while serving the God of hope. You see that that struggle, feeling hopeless while serving the God of hope. I don't know about you, but I'm forgetful. And I have to be reminded constantly that he who is with me is greater than the one in the world. Because I forget that. I forget that a lot. And like Deborah, I think many of you also feel the tension of being in the middle of that, of hopelessness while trying to serve the God of hope. I think a lot of you understand that tension, that wrestling. And guys, when I think about my daughter, and I have no idea where she is, I don't know if she's safe, I don't know when I will see her again, I think about that, and I forget that Jesus still sits on the throne. I forget that. He still sits on the throne, even though my heart wants to fall into despair. Do you know that feeling? Your heart just wants to just give up. Just give up. But the transfiguration is a reminder that in spite of all outward signs of defeat and powerlessness, Jesus is ultimately more powerful than death. But you know, you know what really stuck out to me in this passage? It may not even be that important. I've read this passage before. I've studied it. I've heard sermons on it. But this time, what really stuck out to me was that line where it says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Peter and his companions, they sleep a lot. Those brothers sleep a lot. How many times have we seen Jesus trying to pray and they're just taking a nap? They were sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And man, I thought to myself, is it possible for us to miss the glory of God because we're sleepy? 
Does that happen? I mean, some spiritual sleepiness. I mean, for some of us, it's real sleepiness. You're in there praying in the word, and all of a sudden, it's like, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be completely upfront and honest. I love Lucas. Uh, I was in here last Sunday, and I'm listening to his sermon. I fell asleep. It was a good sermon, but I fell asleep. And when I woke up, he was already in communion, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't even know what to do now, communion. And... But you're sleepy, and you miss. You miss the glory of God. Maybe the disciples were tired. Maybe, and, and we've read what has happened up to this point, it would, be, uh, it, it would be understandable that these men are tired. Or maybe they thought, thought to themselves, you know, I, I, we've been here on this mountaintop. We've been here. We've done that. And there really weren't any expectations because they had already been there. They had already done that. They had prayed with him before. They had heard him teach before on that mountaintop. So what new can we expect right now? There were no expectations. Maybe they felt discouraged. Maybe they were still sitting in that news of Jesus' impending death. Maybe that call to self-denial, to, to take up their cross, just felt too heavy and costly. And sometimes when things feel too heavy and costly, we just fall asleep. That's one of my coping mechanisms. I just, life is falling apart. I just, I just want to sleep and just pretend like it's not happening. Whatever it was, guys, they were exhausted. They were exhausted to the point that they almost missed this majestic moment. They almost missed it. But I believe it was the grace of God that woke them up. The grace of God that woke them up, that did not allow them to miss this. I believe that Jesus is revealing his glory all around us but too often we're asleep. And we're asleep for different reasons, right? We're asleep for different reasons. Sometimes we are tired, sometimes we are discouraged, sometimes we've just become so numb. We're asleep for different reasons, but what we need is to stay woke. We need to stay woke. We have to stay woke because part of the problem is that we don't expect Jesus to show up in the mundane. We don't expect Jesus to show up in our ordinary routines. Or when we're disappointed with life, we don't expect him to show his glory in those moments. And we become sleepy or numb and we miss Jesus because we don't expect him to show up there, because we know he'll come here, but there we'll know we're going to sing some songs here on a Sunday morning, and Jesus will come because we ask him to. But when we go to work, we're not thinking about the glory of God. We're not. I think about myself, and when I put my kids to sleep, anybody got kids? You know, bedtime routines, oh my gosh, they're the worst. At my house, it takes about two hours to put those crazy fools to sleep. Sorry, is Leo still here? He's gone? He couldn't take it? Okay. 
It is, <laughs> it is so exhausting putting those children to sleep, trying to wrangle them together, you know, and I just want to get in and get out, you know, because I'm trying to unwind from the day, and they want me to read them a story, and they want me to pray, and they want me to sing, and, and then, you know, I got to put lotion on them because they got eczema, they got to take their breathing treatments, you know, they got to have their, their chifa, which is their milk, you know, it's just, it's this whole routine, and I just... <laughs> The last thing I'm thinking about is the glory of God when I'm in there with these kids. And then they're fighting. Oh, my gosh. Why are you fighting? You should be tired. Why are you fighting over a car that you didn't even know existed until right now? Why are you fighting? I don't get it. I don't get it. There was one night that, you know, I was feeling like, okay, I need to disciple my kids. I need to, you know, I need to invest in my children. So we're going to read, we're going to read a story from the Bible. So, you know, and guys, I'm telling you, it is not easy. If you have children, you know, trying to sit down and read them a story and they're just hanging off of the ceiling and it's like, oh my gosh, writing on the wall. And so I'm trying, you know, I'm just like, all right, we're going to read a story. So I said, well, you guys choose the story, and then, you know, I'll read it to you. And so they got to pick, each of them got to pick a story. So uh, one of them picked the story uh, of um, uh, Samuel, and when Samuel heard God calling him. And the other one was the story of um, Solomon, King Solomon asking for wisdom. And I can't remember what the third story was, but so... I start reading this story about King Solomon. Well, I start with the story of Samuel and, you know, God calling Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. You know, and they're just so intrigued by this idea that God is calling this child in the middle of the night. And then I read the story about King Solomon, who in a dream, God asked him, what do you want? Whatever you want, I will give it to you. And he asked for wisdom. And my middle child, Elliot, was just so intrigued by that because Elliot has this really um, deep love of money. And so if you're going to ask Elliot, what do you want, Elliot? He's going to be like, I want $5, you know. And so King Solomon's like, I want wisdom. And he's just like, what is that? Why, why did he ask for wisdom, you know? And I'm like, well, wisdom is kind of this, the ability to, to be able to know right from wrong and, you know, all this stuff. And he goes, I need wisdom. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you do. You do need wisdom because you're crazy. You do need wisdom, you know? And so we're reading this, and they're, they're so engaged. I mean, I've never seen them like this before, just totally engaged in the story. And then all of a sudden, you know, after the story, I said, guys, why don't we take a moment to listen? Maybe God wants to say something to you right now. And so we take a moment to listen. And guys, the Lord spoke to my boys. They're six, uh, almost eight, and 11. And he spoke. And I know he spoke because they didn't say something crazy when I asked them, so what did you hear God say? Actually, Leo was just like, I didn't hear anything. I'm like, okay, that's okay. But the other two really heard something really powerful. I can't remember it. I'm a terrible mother, but... It was, it, it was God. It was Jesus. And then I said, okay, let's pray. Let's start praying. And my, my middle child, Elliot, is on his knees begging God to give him wisdom. Begging God, like, God, give me what I want, wisdom. And I'm watching this, and I'm just like, whoa. And then the littlest one, Gabriel, he starts praying and he's just like, God, would you help me at school to love my friends, especially, um, I don't know, Antonio, who doesn't like to listen. And he's just going off and I'm like, he's putting people's business out there. That's okay. But you know, he's praying, but it's like real and genuine. 
And then I asked them, I was like, okay, let's sing a song. We're going to worship God. What song do you want? And so Leo's favorite song is um, His Glory Appears, that you gave me hope, you, you know. And, um, and, and there's the part of the song where it says, um, holy is the Lord, like the angels sing, holy is the Lord. And he was just like, what does that mean, mommy? What does it mean that holy is the Lord. And guys, I, I'm just having this moment with my kids. God showed up in that room. God showed up in my kids' room. They are praying. They are listening for the voice of God. They are wondering, what do these worship songs mean? Why do we sing that? And I just begin to like tear up because I feel the presence of God in my kids' room, in this ordinary routine that we do every single night. And most of the time, guys, I'm not going to lie, I just go in and out. I'm not even trying to be in there for 30 minutes. I want to go watch Netflix, you know, it's like, it's true, I'm not even, I don't want to deal with it, but that moment, God showed up, and I felt so convicted, and Jesus was like, I, I show up here too, Melissa, not just when you preach or lead worship, and you're leading a Bible study, I show up here too, you just don't expect me to, you just come in, and you come out, and you're just trying to hurry up and do the mom thing, and get them to bed, and you're not even expecting me to show up, but I want to show up, I want to speak, if you just give me the space to speak, And I tell you guys, that moment with my kids was so deep and so powerful. I cannot remember the last time I had an encounter with God like that. No music, no lights being turned down, nothing glamorous about it. It was kind of messy, but Jesus showed up. He showed up. He showed up, and I was not expecting that. You guys know that song that we do here, the Here as in Heaven? Where it's like, the atmosphere is changing now, for the Spirit of the Lord is here. And then it says, the evidence is all around, for the Spirit of the Lord is here. And we sing it here. We sing it in this room. And then it says, a miracle can happen now. For the Spirit of the Lord is here. Guys, I wondered, what if we began to declare that in the most unlikely places? What if we began declaring that, that the Spirit of the Lord is here, the atmosphere can begin to change. Miracles can happen now because the Spirit of the Lord is here. Because you are there and you bring the kingdom of God wherever you go. What if we started declaring that? I mean, I, I'm going to ask this right now. You could just yell out, what is an unlikely place for you? What's an unlikely place for you? Campus. Campus. Social board games. Social board games? Social board games. Okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> yes. What else? What is an unlikely place for you that you would not think that the atmosphere is changing and the spirit of the Lord is there? Huh? In your brokenness. At work. Where? Strip club work, yes. You're not expecting the Spirit of God. And in the checkout line at Walmart, because you're annoyed because there's one cashier and there's like 30 people, you don't expect the Spirit of God to be in that place. That's how I feel. That's the last thing I'm thinking about. Shoot, it would be a miracle if they called one more cash cashier to come. You know what I'm saying? That would be... Bad. 
I'm not saying that we need to live on the mountaintop with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we, we need to build tents and make a home in pursuit of these extravagant and miraculous encounters. That's not what I'm saying. We don't need to live there in the holies of holies. But what we do need is to stay woke. We need to stay woke. We cannot allow weariness, fear, hopelessness, or the mundane to put us to sleep. We can't. We will miss the glory of God. We need to stay woke to the possibility that Jesus may want to reveal his glory when and where we least expect it. That possibility exists. It is very real that he wants to show up in places where we least expect it. And the worship team could come up and join me as I finish up. Who do the crowds say I am? Who do you say I am? As I've spent time in this passage, it seems that the transfiguration reveals a very clear message. It boldly and indisputably claims that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord. You know, it's almost as if Jesus were saying, in case you weren't convinced, in case you weren't sure about me, in case you thought that I am just a good teacher, that I am just a prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist, in case you thought that I am a mortal man who will die like every other man, this is who I am. And it says, and then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. John Carroll comments on this passage saying, although the disciples do not yet fully grasp the revelation, because I still think, you know, Peter starts saying, oh, should we build a tent? It's good for us to be here. Let's build a tent for Elijah and for Moses. And he starts saying all this crazy stuff. And even in parentheses, it says, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> That's so awesome. He didn't fully get it. They didn't fully get what was happening before them. But the transfiguration gives definitive answers to the many questions about Jesus's identity. All the questions that were circulating right now in this moment, even if they didn't fully get it, it was giving them a very definite answer. This is who he is. This is my son. And I feel like the disciples, I don't fully understand what all this means. Some days I think I understand more than others. But the answer then is still true today. This is my son whom I have chosen. And we must listen to him, not just as a good teacher, not just as a prophet or a healer, but as God, as Lord, as King. And I'm just so deeply moved by the father's words about his son. I love that, that of all 
things that God could have said in that moment. He said, this is my son. I've chosen him. Of all that he could have said to describe Jesus, he says, this is my son. And whether Jesus was getting baptized, whether he was teaching in the synagogue, healing lepers, raising the dead to life, when he was driving out demons, feeding the 5,000, sitting on a mountain and praying, and especially when he hung on that cross, he was always loved. He was always chosen. That never changed. The father was always pleased with his son. When his son was strong and when his son was at his weakest, he was always pleased. Everyone demanded and still today demands something different of Jesus. Everyone has their ideas of who he should be. But at the end of the day, he is fully God. He was fully human, fully human, loved and chosen. That is what he is. That is what he was. Guys, I'm going to be really honest with you because preparing for this morning was really hard. It was especially hard this time around. It's not the first time I've spoken up here, but it was hard and I struggled. And I don't want to act like getting up here and bringing a word from Jesus is easy. It is not easy as a mom and a wife on staff with the underground and all the roles that I'm trying to balance in my life. Getting ready for this morning was not easy. It was not easy to find the time. It was not easy to get my heart in the right place to hear from Jesus. And I did. I had a hard time. I had a hard time hearing, God, what is it that you're trying to say to me? What do you want to say to us? What is it that you want to communicate? And I wrestled with why do I have to be the one to deliver this word today? Why me? Someone else should do this. Someone else could do this. It shouldn't be me. It doesn't have to be me. Who am I? Who am I? I'm always, always, always asking that question. I always ask that question. There has never been a time in my life where I have not asked the question, who am I? Like, why? (laughs) I'm nobody. Who am I? And you see, That was the deeper question that I was being asked growing up. That was the question. Who are you? Who are you? And I have tried all my life to search for that answer, to figure it out. And I realized that when you search for that answer of who am I, when you search for that answer outside of the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit, your eyes and your heart begin to wander and look for meaning and purpose in other places. And your gaze is taken off of Jesus and you can only see yourself and your shortcomings and your failures and why someone else is better for the task and why someone else could do it better. That's all you see. You don't see the glory of God. You don't see that you were created in the image of God. You don't see that he's pleased with you. You don't see that he's chosen you. All you see is that I'm just not good enough. I'm not enough. Who 
I am does not make sense without the revelation of who Jesus is. It just doesn't. And our understanding of Jesus shapes our understanding of ourselves, who we are, and what we were made for. Like I said earlier, I feel silly getting up here trying to preach or teach or share uh, what the Word of God means for us. I feel small. I feel like I shouldn't be doing this. And the problem is that I project that unto God too. So I feel small and then I think he's small and I feel weak and powerless and so I think he's also weak and powerless and I feel ineffective at times and so I think well he's probably ineffective too I don't mean to do it but I do it because when I see how inadequate and and, and ineffective I am I make God small I minimize his power I do and I cannot see his glory and I cannot see that he wants to perform miracles around me through me, in me not small. He is not insignificant. He is not weak or ineffective, even though sometimes we are. He is not. And we need to understand that that has to be right in us. Our understanding of Jesus has to be made right, and only he can do that for us. You understand? It's like we can't do that ourselves. We can't have a right understanding of God on our own. We need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and revelation so that we can know his Son better. So I just invite you to take a moment and just close your eyes. And I just want to read this passage in Colossians 1 in case we've forgotten in case we need to be reminded, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things they hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he and he alone might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him and through only him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so as you come to the table this morning, I invite you to remember Jesus, who he is, who he truly is, and examine your own heart.
And if there is any fear, hopelessness, or discouragement that has taken dominion over your heart and now rivals the place of God, I ask you to confess that. If fear and disappointment and weariness has taken dominion and it now rivals the place of God, I invite you to confess that. Don't hold on to it. Don't be embarrassed by it. Be honest. Lay it down. Maybe you just need to take a moment and ask Jesus to open your eyes to the unlikely places where he wants to reveal his glory. Where, even this week, does he want to reveal his glory? And that you would not miss it, that you would be fully awake, looking, searching, Asking God, what do you want to do here in this space? Because a miracle can happen now for the Spirit of the Lord is here. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup saying, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you eat and drink, you remember, you remember me. And you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, when you are ready, and take your time, guys. You don't have to rush up here. If God is doing something, speaking something, let him do that work in you right now. But when you are ready, the body and the blood of Jesus given for you.